morning. <clears throat> Can we pray together before we start? Heavenly Father, we um, come before you this morning with yearning and eager hearts, wanting to hear from you through the Spirit once again. But God, frankly, we come with distracted minds and busy hearts. And God, we just pray that during this time that you would speak so powerfully to us that the convictions that have grown so dim would become strengthened once again, that the idols that we hold fast to so dear, that you would by your word loosen those grips so that we can hold fast to your promises once again. Father, we pray that you would affirm our beliefs and our convictions that we hold to be true. But likewise, that you would take away any misunderstandings that we have, that you would also correct and challenge us this morning as we come to your word. And we trust, Spirit, that you would be faithful to this task as you have been for centuries, that you would speak to your church once again. In Christ's name, amen. Now, last week, we uh, started a new short series on the church. And uh, to do this, we turned our attention to Matthew 16, 13 to 20. And in this, we decided to look at three things. We decided to look at the builder of the church. We decided to look at the building of the church. And third, we decided to look at the business of the church. Last week, we explored the first topic, the builder. You know, Matthew 16 is the first time that the word church is mentioned in the New Testament. And in this first occurrence of the word church, Jesus makes clear to his disciples that the church is something that he builds. Jesus is the architect of the church. The origins of the church is not found, or the origins of the church are not in the minds of man, but it begins with God. And as we find through Peter's confession in Matthew 16, 16, Jesus, the builder of the church, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this is important as we saw last week, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This presupposes two things. You know, when Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, he's saying, Jesus, you are the Savior. You are God's anointed Savior. And this presupposes two things. It presupposes that the church, because Jesus is the Christ, because he is the Savior, it presupposes that the church needs saving. You know, people tend to forget this often. We tend to think that the church is for good people, is for people whose lives are buttoned up. We, think, we tend to think that the church is for people who have things figured out. You know, I've met many, many um, people in the past, and whenever I would invite them out to church, they would say things like, uh, my life is, is not in order yet. I need to get my life in order first. No, the church, as we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, we are confessing that the church is not for good people, but it's for sinners, and the church needs saving. 
So if you think about this, you know, the church, as you think about the church, the church is not this clean, empty lot that any contractor could come and just simply build on. No, the church is more like an old, run-down, deserted warehouse filled with mold and asbestos. If you walk in, you see rats and cockroaches crawling all over the place. It's a building where the builder needs to come and demolish, demo everything, redo the foundations, redo the entire drainage system, and then build it up again. That is what the church is. We confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. And in doing so, we are confessing that we need saving. You know, Philadelphia, this area, the greater Philadelphia area, has a rich history of churches. There are amazing, amazing historic churches here. And, you know, some of you might know, you know, we, the, the Quakers are here, uh, the, the, the Mennonites are in this area. Uh, you know, you have a rich history of Presbyterianism. You know, this area was tremendously blessed with, with a rich history of churches. In fact, many people consider Philadelphia to be the seminary capital of the world. There are many seminaries located here, fine, fine institutions where they teach and train pastors. But that doesn't mean that this area, the churches in this area, it doesn't mean that they are exempt and that they don't need saving. Now, many of you who've lived in this area for a while, who've attended church in this area for a while, you might have had really bad experiences where this was apparent. You know, when I first came and got a chance to meet people and started talking to you and, you know, where have you been? What was the journey like? And, you know, many people have shared with me the stories of the churches that they've attended. But then there was division. There was brokenness. The churches that they attended, but there was fighting and they split. All the messiness and the dirtiness of the church. You know, and the churches in this area, the churches all throughout the world, scattered. We must not forget that, yeah, even the churches here are broken. That is why we confess that Jesus is the Christ. The second thing that this presupposes as we see Jesus, Peter confesses Jesus is the living Son of God. Now, this presupposes that this work of building up the church is not going to fail. You see, this church project is not going to end up as a failed project. This project is not going to be deserted because it's just too hard. There are too many obstacles and hurdles. No. This project that Christ commits himself to, to building up the church, He's not saying he's never going to put this project on hold because he ran out of capital. He has no more money. And Jesus is the Son of God. He has committed himself to this work, and he will see it through. That's why he says that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because of its builder. See, this is the reason why we can have confidence in the church. This is the reason why we can have faith in the church. This is the reason why we confess every Sunday morning, I believe in the Holy Christian Church. It's not because of the people that make up the church, but it's because of the builder. 
You know, there's this um, cartoon show that maybe your children watched growing up, or maybe you watched it, you know, with millennials and esports. But remember the cartoon Bob the Builder? Right? It, was, it was a British cartoon, Bob the Builder, and it was, a, it was this character who, uh, whose name was Bob, he was a contractor, he, and he, was, he was building things. And he had these friends. Uh, they were, you know, this dump truck, this fork, forklift, and, and all these other, uh, these, these machineries that, that all talked. And the premise of the show, every time, it would start with something that's broken. And they would get Bob to fix it. Bob, can you and your friends fix this mess? And yes, they would say, can you fix this? And they would say, yes, we can, or yes, I can, right? You guys know, right? Um, but but that, was, that was the way in which the show started. Can you fix this mess? And they would say, yes, we can. But as they're fixing it, right, physically fixing it, what goes on? There's a lot of conflict, a lot of interpersonal relationships that go bad and sour. There's misunderstanding. And so the premise of the show is, yeah, it starts with, okay, there's this pothole, can you fix it? But as they're fixing this pothole, they realize that there's trouble amongst the people. And then what happens? Bob comes in and he fixes it. He fixes it and he builds, not just whatever needs building, but he builds his friends. You know, that, that's, that's what Jesus is doing with the church. He's building it. He's taking all the messiness and the brokenness of sin and human community, and he's building it up marvelously, beautifully into the church. Today, I want to now focus our attention and look more closely at the church, this building that Jesus himself commits to. So as you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to turn to Ephesians 2, the second passage that we've looked at. If you can turn there, we're gonna, we've read uh, verses 19 to 22, but you know, I think it's important that we try to start from the beginning, or Ephesians 2, to lay some of the groundwork. At the start of Ephesians 2, Paul expounds masterfully on the redemptive work of Jesus. Paul says that while we were dead in our sins, while we were dead in our trespasses, God being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And it's here in Ephesians 2 that we find those well-known verses. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is beautiful prose, beautiful theology, and it speaks of a beautiful Savior who saves us by grace through faith. It is not something that we do on our own. Now, after Paul speaks of Jesus' work of salvation, immediately Paul's mind now shifts to the church. He starts thinking about the church, and he starts to explore the implications of Jesus' work. See, Paul says this, if we have been raised together with Christ, what does that mean? If we have been raised together with Christ, it means that whatever hostility and whatever divisions there were between individuals and people groups, all those things the cross did away with. So the cross not only broke the hostility between man and God, but it broke the walls of hostility and division between man and man. And now, as we have been raised together with Jesus, it means that we are one in Christ. 
You know, too often our view of Christianity stops at verse 9. We have been saved by faith or grace through faith. It is a gift of God. And we say, yeah, that's right. I have been saved by Jesus. I am a new man. But if your view of Christianity stops there, it is an incomplete view. You see, Jesus, as he raises us together with all the saints, he says that now we are not just a new man, but now we have entered into a new society. When we become a new man in Jesus, we are brought into a new community, which is the church. Hence, the complete vision of the gospel, the full vision of Jesus' gospel is new man and new society. See, too often as Christians, we stop at new man. I am a new man. But no, the gospel extends further to new man, new society. See, when Paul talks about the gospel of us being raised with Jesus, he doesn't say that we have been raised individually with Jesus. He says we have been raised together, together with all the saints. You know, Karl Marx in his uh, Communist Manifesto, he dreams of this new man, new society. And he proposes a way that we can achieve new man, new society. Marx and Engels, they say something like this. He says this, if we restructure this economic disparity that we have, if we get rid of all social classes, and if no one owns any property anymore, and if we get rid of inheritance altogether, everything would belong to the state, which would then belong to everyone else. And man, because he no longer is fighting for possessions, he would be totally freed and he would be transformed. Marx and Engels say, if we create a new society, we can create a new man. You know, communism is great on paper, but we know how terrible it is in practice. You know, Paul, in the gospel of Jesus is presenting a greater vision. See, he understands that the true problem of man is not in his surroundings. It's not society that is first and foremost the issue. He knows that a new society is not going to produce a new man. But Paul knows that the human needs a new heart, not just a new surrounding. Now, how many times have we fooled ourselves into thinking, if I just have a new social surrounding, I'll be a different person? How many times have we fooled ourselves into thinking, you know what, I just need to get into this college because if I do, then I'm gonna be around all these other great people who study and I'm gonna start studying too. How many times have we fooled ourselves into thinking, if I'm around more and more diligent people, I'm going to be diligent too. If I just seek out this new society or this new social group, I'm going to change too. Now, the gospel is not about, hey, find this new community and you will be changed too. No. Paul understands the deep-rooted sin issue that man faces and that what we need first 
is to become a new man, to become a new person. We need to literally die to our sins and rise again with Jesus. And as we do so, as we become a new person, a new creation, we enter into a new community. You know what this means? This means that the church is not going to save you. This means that the church is not your salvation. We are saved only by being united to Jesus. However, by being united to Jesus, de facto means that we are united to others. New man, new society is the radical vision of the gospel. And so, yes, we can't have one without the other. You can't say, I am a new man in Jesus, but this new society, this new community, I can do without. I want Jesus, but the church, no thank you. You can't do that. This vision for the gospel is one where we become new and enter into a new society. Now, from this point, from that point on in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, Paul starts to describe what the church is. And he likens it to three things, and we'll go through these things uh, relatively quickly um, so that, um, you know, and, and, and as we do so, I'm, I'm hoping that as we understand what Paul is teaching about the church, that these things would really shape our understanding of the church and expand the way in which we view the church. Okay, so first... If you look at the first underline, verse 19, he calls Christians fellow citizens. Okay? He says, you guys are fellow citizens. In other words, Paul is likening the church to a nation or to a kingdom. You know, a nation is made up of people who have a common citizenship. It's made up of people who pledge their allegiance to a common flag. A nation is made up of people who live under the same laws and people who are under the same governance, under the same leader and the same king. And Paul is saying, so also is the church. The church is a nation. It's likened to a country. You know, this is a radical statement, especially during Paul's time, where citizenship was held in such high regard. You know what's the easiest way to separate people? Citizenship. Right? If you see a group of people, and the easiest way to separate them is say, okay, where's your birthplace? Where's your citizenship? Citizenship is the first line of separation between people. In the Roman Empire, it determined what job you could have, what roads you can travel, what kind of taxes you paid, the benefits you received. And through citizenship, there was this shared experience that people had. You know, today, positively, citizenship is the most basic way we feel connected to each other. You know, and, and you see this in the most mundane ways. If you've ever lived outside of your country or the country that you are a citizen of, if you ever lived outside of your country for a while, you know, there's this longing just to see another fellow American. Right. You know, I, I've been to airports before and, you know, where I'm out of the country for a while and, you know, I'm at the airport and I see just a sea of faces, you know, different colors, different ethnicities, different backgrounds. And at the counter, if I see someone with that blue passport, I just want to run up and hug them. <laughs> yeah. 
Ah, oh, you fellow American, you good American. I've missed you so much. You know, people who live outside of the country, you know, they, they um, you know, they, we call them, uh, you know, expats. But because they long for their fellow citizens, they, they start to create their own communities in, in, in foreign countries. Even though they've assimilated and they're working there and they speak the language, still there's this longing to be with fellow citizens. And so they create these communities. They, they set up shop and businesses. They serve the food that, that brings back memories of their hometown and music that reminds them back of good old home. You know, and, and you know, as the World Cup is going on now, we see it in the way in which people, citizenship just unites people. Being from the same country just unites people. You can walk into any restaurant, and if a game is on from your country, those countrymen come together. And you don't even know their names, but you're slapping hands and cheering alongside one another. You know, this radical vision of the gospel is that those who are in Jesus are fellow citizens with one another. We are citizens together in God's kingdom. The second thing that Paul likens the church to in verse 19 is that of a household, that of a family. He says the people in the church, the church is are made up of people who have the same bloodline, people who are related. You know, this description, you know, being fellow citizens, yeah, that's good. I think many of us can accept that. But this next description of us being members of the same household, I think that is a little more difficult to accept. I think many of us wouldn't be bothered if I say, the church, in the church, we are fellow citizens. I think many of us would say yes. But if I say, you know, the church, we are also members of the same household, the same family. This might make some people feel uncomfortable. I mean, just look around you. I mean, literally look around you. Look at the people that you are sitting next to, sitting with, sitting around. Would you consider these people family? I know we say that we're brothers and sisters, but we always have to say we're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we always have to qualify it somehow. I know we understand that, you know, we are close, but would you consider the church family. You know, citizenship is the first and easiest way to divide people. Family is the last way to divide. Family is considered to be the nucleus, a group of people made up of the closest people. Family is made up of these inseparable relationships. And for that reason, we consider family to be sacred. No one leaves the family. And no one could come into the family except through a vow. The only way that you could ever enter into this family is by you promising till death they was part. But for Paul, this idea of the family, the household, describes so well what the church is, what this new society is. In this new community, in this new society, God is our Father. Jesus is our older brother, and by adoption, we become co-heirs with Christ. And this family that we have entered, by virtue of Jesus, the church family, this family is a family that does not expire. You know, our blood family, 
the family that we cherish here in this world remains family only in this world. Yes, that's why our vow is, till death do us part. Death will part the family. But the church family, this radical vision of the gospel, of a new man, new society, the church family, this household of God is an eternal family. You know, that's why the gospel is, is such a scandalous thing. It's such a stumbling block. Because it takes the, the things of this world that we, that we enjoy so much, that we resonate with so much, it takes the blessings of this world and say, you know what, what the gospel does, it, it elevates all of these things and it brings us now all together. And Jesus teaches in the gospel that in heaven, there's going to be no marriage. There's going to be no family. Why? Because we are all going to be the family of God. So being a part of a church, being a part of Christ's new community, it doesn't mean just putting up with others. You know, being a church is not about just sitting in the same room with other people that you don't know for 90 minutes once a week. It means that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we have been raised together, then we are actually an eternal family. The third metaphor that Paul uses to describe the church is that of a building, that of a temple. He says this, so then now you, starting from verse 20, are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In these verses that we find in front of us, Paul, he is likening the church to a temple. He's saying that the church now is being built up to be this magnificent temple. And he is likening each believer, each of us, as a stone. He's saying each and every one of us are like a stone that Jesus, the masterful builder, the skilled mason, he is laying next to one another. You know, if the family metaphor was too intimate, are you saying that these people here are really my brothers and my sisters? You know, this, this imagery, this metaphor of a building is so much more intimate. Imagine being a stone stuck to one another by mortar. That's the vision that Paul is presenting, that Jesus, this skilled mason, he is laying each and every one of us next to each other. And as each stones are being placed next to each other, this building, this church, is now being built up. Paul also indicates for us the reason why Jesus is doing this is so that God may dwell within her that the church, as we believers, are being built up into the church. He's doing this so that God, by His Spirit, may live within us. You know, in the Old Testament, there was a point where God's Spirit had departed from the temple. 
There was a point where God said, you know what, I'm not going to dwell with man anymore. He left the temple and he said, I'm not going to enter into any man-made temples. Well, it seems that this was because God had in mind a new temple built not by man, but built by his own son, Jesus. Jesus had in mind this new temple that was made not with gold and silver and purple yarn, but a temple that was built by actual people who have been redeemed by Jesus. And so the church is both a holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, as we've just gone through these three metaphors, let, let, let this idea of the church, this, this new vision of a new society, let it expand and enhance and deepen your understanding of what the church actually is. You know, I stated this last week. I don't know if you have a very low view of the church. I'm not sure, but I, I find that that's often the case. Now, people tend to have a very low view of the church. And I think certainly even during Jesus' time, this was the case. You know, the disciples and the early Christians, they were at times disappointed by the church. They were underwhelmed by the church, right? I mean, the first time the church is mentioned right here in Matthew 16, the first time, you know, what does Jesus say? He says, I will build the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And, you know, I'm sure the disciples are thinking, oh, my goodness, the church is going to be amazing. You know, right? And Jesus hyped up the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And they thought, man, the church is going to be made up with these huge physical buildings that are erected with fine stone and gold and silver. They probably thought of huge nations of people joining the church. They probably thought that the church was going to be something mighty. But when you get to Acts, you get a very different picture of the church. You get a very different picture. Yeah, people are coming to faith, but the picture of the church you get is widows fighting over daily distribution. You get a picture of a church where there's persecution that breaks out and, and the church is scattering. You get a picture where there's fighting going on in the church. Churches are planted throughout the Mediterranean world and Paul, this one missionary, is going around and he's planting churches and preaching the gospel, but it's nothing impressive. I mean, these churches are like households. They're small, small churches. You know, Paul as he's planning the church and, and people are coming to faith, there's this, all this fighting going on. And Paul, he's writing these letters to deal with issues in the church. He's writing letters to put out fires. And I'm sure the disciples have thought many times, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church? Jesus, this is the church that you spoke of? These tiny group of people fighting over the most trivial things? Is this what the church is supposed to be? Yes. Yes, Jesus was building his church then. He's building our church now. 
as it was the case then, the gospel is going forth. People are being saved. They're coming to faith in Jesus despite the messiness and the ugliness that surrounds it. Now, I often get asked the question, being from New York, I always get asked the question, what's the best pizza in New York? And no offense, but this is a really stupid question. <laughs> People who ask, what's the best pizza in New York? They don't understand what makes New York pizza beautiful. You know why New York pizza is so good? It's not because there is this one or two or three famous establishments. You know what makes New York pizza good? That wherever you go, you can get a really good slice of pizza for about a dollar, as cheap as a dollar, to about three dollars. New York pizza is amazing because wherever you go, you can walk into the most random pizzeria and you can get a solid pizza for two dollars and fifty cents. New York pizza is amazing because wherever you go, it's solid, it's good. You know, and I've, I've taken trips with people and, you know, people wanted to know, you know, would, you know, I want some New York pizza, and they would go to these places and they would be a little underwhelmed. They'd go to this hole-in-the-wall establishment and say, this is New York pizza? The bathrooms are dirty, the service is terrible, it's cash only, and they say, come on, like, this isn't what I dreamt of. See, but I always tell them, no, the beauty of New York pizza is that you can go anywhere, any time of the day, and you can get something really good always. That's the beauty of New York pizza. And I think that's the beauty of the church. Nothing fabulous, nothing marvelous, but wherever you go, you have a real solid group of people where the gospel is preached. Yes, there is messiness, there is dirtiness, there is brokenness, and you wonder, man, how does this place even stay open sometimes? But the gospel is preached. People are saved. And Jesus, through this work, he's continuing to build his church. I want to ask you this morning, what is your faith in the church lie? Where does it lie? Does it lie in the leadership does it lie in the people? Or does it lie in the builder who is building the church in this magnificent way, in these very small ways and pockets throughout the world with the simple task of preaching, this gospel going forth? Does your confidence in the church, does your faith in the church lie in Jesus, the builder? Join me in prayer this morning.